does welfare prevent crime? On the one hand, taxpayers did save money by not paying these SSI benefits uh, to these young people. But on the other hand, the increase in criminal justice involvement, and in particular in incarceration, was so large, and incarceration in the United States is so expensive, that the cost of policing and incarceration basically wipe out all of the savings to taxpayers from not having paid those SSI benefits. Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Vigland. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're looking at what happened when the government changed the rules on who could receive supplemental Social Security income, specifically young Americans with disabilities. Did the removal of welfare benefits put them on the path toward work, or did it do the opposite? Manasi Deshpande, an assistant professor in economics in the Kenneth C. Griffin Department of Economics, joins us to discuss her findings on whether welfare prevents crime. Manasi Deshpande, welcome to The Pie. Thanks for having me. I think it's fair to say that uh, questions around welfare have been some of the thorniest of the last several decades of political history, right? And in some circles, uh, welfare is a handout to people who aren't willing to work. In other circles, it's a, it's a helping hand to those who need it. So I'd like you to take us back briefly to a landmark piece of legislation, uh, the 1996 Welfare Reform Act signed by President Clinton. And there is a before and after picture here that is stunning that will reveal itself as, as we go along in this interview. So give us the background on that picture. First, what did this act do? Yeah, so most people remember the 1996 welfare reform law for what it did to the traditional cash welfare program in the United States, which was at the time AFDC, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, and then was later turned, as a result of that legislation, turned into the TANF block grant program. But a lesser known provision in the 1996 welfare reform law was that it changed rules for supplemental security income eligibility, specifically for children and young adults. And explain what SSI is. Yeah, so SSI is a cash welfare program that provides cash income and Medicaid eligibility to to low-income children and adults who have disabilities. Okay, so what was the change? So the change was, one of the changes to SSI was that Children who received SSI benefits, so these are children who have a disability and whose parents have low income and assets, these children, when they reached the age of 18, had to be reevaluated for SSI under the adult criteria. And the criteria that qualify children and adults for this program are different. So for children, eligibility is determined primarily by age-appropriate activity. Whereas for adults, eligibility is determined by someone's ability to work. So, so when we're looking at children, how, how is disability defined? What, what, do you, what do you mean by activity? So things like social interaction, school performance. There are some conditions for both adults and children that are on what's called the medical listings that will qualify anyone with that condition for SSI. But there are also conditions that are not on the list that potentially qualify either children or adults for SSI. 
And then the disability evaluator is making a judgment about whether that condition is severe enough to qualify for SSI. And those rules, obviously, to some extent, have to be different for children than they are for adults, in particular because children don't work. And so we can't use the ability to work standard for children. So they're going to look at things like how they interact with their peers and in society and their school performance, for example. Okay. Why did you choose to look at, at children for this research, young adults? There, there has been quite a bit of controversy about the SSI Children's Program. It's a program that there was a 1990 Supreme Court decision, Sullivan versus Zebley, that allowed children to qualify for this program on the basis of mental and behavioral conditions. And you can see after Sullivan versus Zebley a large increase in enrollment among children in SSI. This is part of what prompts Congress in this 1996 welfare reform law to change the rules to try to slow the growth of this program for children and young adults. And a lot of the controversy has come from children with these kinds of behavioral conditions qualifying for for this program. Should children with uh, mental and behavioral conditions be eligible for a cash welfare program, essentially? And in particular, is it discouraging educational achievement? What happens when they reach the age of 18? These are all questions that have been either speculated about or there has been some anecdotal evidence uh, about, but very little good empirical evidence about the effects of this program on children and young adults. And so I wanted to fill that gap. So with the 1996 reform law, from what I understand, uh, they set a date for it to take effect. And if you were born before that date, you were essentially grandfathered into one welfare system. If you were born after, like, I mean, we're talking a span of 48 hours, right? (laughs) I mean, it's it's a date certain. Uh, then you were in the new system uh, where you were then, as you mentioned, reevaluated on whether or not you'd continue to receive those benefits. So this gave you a really stark set of data, right? Or, or two sets to be exact. Exactly. Yeah. So when I, when I read about the 1996 welfare reform law, I didn't know how Social Security had actually implemented this rule. There was nothing in the legislation that said it has to apply to kids born on a certain date or anything like that. And so what I discovered when I looked at the data was that the data clearly painted painted a story of how Social Security was implementing this law, that in particular, they, they took the date of welfare reform enactment, which was August 22nd, 1996, and they said, okay, any child who has an 18th birthday after on or after August 22nd, 1996, is going to be subject to the new rules, the stricter eligibility criteria. They're going to have to get reviewed for the adult SSI program. Whereas children who have an 18th birthday before the date of welfare reform enactment, so you know, August 21st, 1996 or before, they're not going to be subject to these new rules and they'll be allowed to continue on to the adult program. That is the definition of the luck of the draw. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. It it is a matter of a day. All right. So you set out to measure the effects of the stripping of this benefit. So all these people who turned 18 after that date, um, 
comparing what happened to those who kept receiving it to those who lost it. And specifically, you were looking at, well, you use the phrase uh, criminal justice outcomes. Basically, what percentages of this population ended up either committing crimes or getting jobs? Uh, walk us through what you found in terms of involvement in the criminal justice system after losing these SSI benefits and the types of crime that landed this population in jail. Yes. So, you know, just thinking about, you know, kind of basic economic theory, what would that predict when someone loses a, a pretty large amount of income? So we're talking something like $8,000, $10,000 a year for a population that is very low income to begin with. So this might represent half of their household income or even more, uh, this loss. Based on this kind of large income loss, you might expect one of two outcomes. One is that these young people might work in the formal labor market more than they otherwise would have in order to recover the income that's been lost. Uh, and the second is that they might pursue income essentially outside of the formal sector, right? And so, you know, the first thing that we can look at is, is formal employment. So we do see some kind of modest increases in formal employment among young people who were removed from the SSI program as a result of this policy change. But after we did that, we then were able to merge criminal records from about 20 states uh, to the social security record. And what was striking to us is that we saw huge increases in criminal justice involvement. And by most of the measures we can define, larger increases in criminal justice involvement than increases in formal employment. And so more young people were responding by engaging in this kind of illicit income generating activity than were responding by working in the formal labor market. And what are some of the types of crime? That was, I think, one of the, the really striking findings is that we don't find a lot of, we don't find big effects on things like violent crime. Almost all of the increase in criminal justice involvement is coming from charges associated with what we call income generating activity. So these are things like theft, burglary, robbery, identity theft, uh, prostitution, and drug distribution. So these are all activities where I think we could generally They're going to generate money. That are going to generate money, exactly. Yeah. That might be a substitute for working in the formal labor market. And how big was the increase in those kinds of offenses? So there are huge increases in those kinds of offenses. So we find a, a, about a 20% increase in charges overall. But when we look at those income generating charges, we see a 60% increase in the number of income generating criminal charges as a result of being removed from this program. I believe they call that statistically significant. <laughs> yes, not just statistically significant, but large, right? Yeah, but both I mean, large it's stunning. and statistically significant. Yeah. So these are 60%. 60%, yes. These are huge increases. And we can look not only at the increase in, in criminal charges, but also at the increase in incarceration that's resulting from these elevated criminal charges. And we see also about a 60% increase in the likelihood of being incarcerated in any given year over the 20 year period that we see you as a result of, of being removed. So essentially these young people are being removed from this program. The SSI benefit. The SSI benefit. A small fraction of them are 
working in the formal labor market more, a much larger fraction are engaged in this kind of criminal activity intended to generate income, and that is then increasing the likelihood that they end up in prison. So not only are they getting arrested and put in jail, but then they're found guilty and end up in the system. That's right. That's right. And even, you know, I should say, even with the the charge data we're looking at, we have we have data on charges. And so any estimates that I'm giving you should really be scaled up by a large fraction if we want to think about the, the true increase in the number of criminal incidents or in the number of arrests. We can't, obviously, it's very hard to see actual number of criminal incidents because not all of, not all incidents lead to a charge. And so right. we should really be scaling up these, these numbers by, you know, a fact, maybe a factor of 10 or something like that. Yeah. Okay. So then to me, the next logical question, if you're looking at a 60% increase in offenses, uh, is like, when does that happen? Is it right after they lose the benefits? Is it five, 10 years after that, that it continues? Yeah, a really useful feature of our setting is that we can look at these criminal charges and incarceration more than 20 years later. And so that's one of the, the things we were most interested to look at is, is what is the time path of these criminal charges and incarceration. And you're right that one, you might think that, well, maybe this is just a, a transitory effect, that basically people need some time to figure out they need to adjust, how they're going to adjust. Yeah, exactly. They need to figure out how they're going to get money right away, and then maybe they get a job. Exactly. But that's not what we see happening. Instead, what we see is incredibly persistent increases in criminal justice involvement and in incarceration. And one kind of striking thing is that when we look at you know, who is pursuing crime versus work right after this change, what we see is that there are some people who transition from working in the formal labor market to doing crime later, but there is basically no one who goes in the opposite direction. There is no one who first responds with crime who then manages to respond by working more in the formal labor market later in life. And so what's happening is that this change is leading immediately to increases in these criminal charges. And then we see a persistent effect on criminal charges and incarceration for the next 20 years. And not surprisingly, we see these effects being exacerbated by the Great Recession. You also found a fascinating and sad difference between men and women, right? Talk us through that. What types of crime we're seeing and how long that's lasting in their lives, men versus women? Yeah, this was a pretty interesting finding. You know, a lot of a lot of studies that look at criminal justice involvement focus only on men uh, because they are more likely to be involved in in the criminal justice system. Uh, But we were able to look at both men and women, and we were pretty struck by by the findings. So in terms of overall effects, what we find is that men have a higher baseline level of criminal justice involvement, meaning that even for those kids who continue to get SSI in adulthood, criminal justice involvement among men is, is pretty high. Uh, being removed from SSI increases that in the likelihood of involvement substantially. And that's concentrated for men mostly in theft, um, some some drug distribution, some robbery. So still income generating crime. Exactly. When we look at women, 
we see lower baseline levels of criminal justice involvement for women. So again, the, the women who continue to receive SSI in adulthood, as you would expect, have lower baseline levels of involvement than men. But what we see is the effect of SSI is much larger for women than it is for men. So the causal effect of being removed from SSI is much larger for women than it is for men. And not only that, but the types of crime uh, that they're involved in is also different. So just like for men, we do see large increases in theft, uh, theft charges for women. We also see large increases in identity theft, so, so fraud and forgery. Um, so that's something that's unique to women as well. But another thing that we find is also large increases in prostitution charges for women. You know, prostitution is a, is a different, we, we, we call it a crime because it is, a, you know, it is illegal, but obviously that's a different type of crime than a crime that has a, an obvious victim like you know, theft or identity theft or something like that. So we see these very large increases in prostitution charges for women as a result of, um, as a result of being removed from SSI. And I think this, to me, is the mo kind of the most striking evidence that a lot of these young people may not have the skills to succeed in the formal labor market. They're turning to whatever they can, whatever they know how to do to increase their income. You, you mentioned, of course, that uh, men are the larger portion of the criminal population in this country. Uh, and there are plenty of studies showing that minorities are incarcerated at greater numbers than whites. Does that bear out here as well? Does, does that inequity persist in your research? This was another interesting finding. We were able to, because we have a large sample, we're able to look at a lot of different subgroups uh, by race, by family structure, by gender. And when we look at the effects by race, what was interesting was that we found similar increases in the number of criminal charges or the likelihood of having a criminal charge for for whites and blacks. But when we looked at the increase in incarceration as a result of being removed from SSI, we see larger increases in the likelihood of incarceration for black youth than for white youth. Some of that might be explained by the different nature of the criminal charges that they're facing, uh, but some of it might also be explained by either discrimination or just sort of structural, uh, you know, kind of structural racism, if you want to call it that, in the, in the criminal justice system. That this is not just about black youth and white youth, but also about higher income and lower income youth and youth from two parent families and one parent families. We consistently find that even though for all of these groups, the increase in the likelihood of having a criminal charge is similar, the increase in the likelihood of being incarcerated is higher for the more disadvantaged groups relative to the less disadvantaged groups. So what then is the cost-benefit analysis here for society? The facts and figures that you have in this research are stark. But of course, the, the debate is on the one hand, you have welfare benefits. And in this situation, we're talking specifically about the SSI for disabled Americans. On the other hand, clearly it costs society a lot of money to have people in the justice system in jail. What do you see in the research that tells us what we're spending taxpayer dollars on? The headline conclusion from our cost-benefit analysis is essentially that the U.S. taxpayer broke even on this 
investment, if you want to call it that, of removing young people from SSI. That, as you're saying, on the one hand, taxpayers did save money by not paying these SSI benefits uh, to these young people. But on the other hand, the increase in criminal justice involvement, and in particular in incarceration, was so large, and incarceration in the United States is so expensive, that the cost of policing and incarceration basically wipe out all of the savings to taxpayers from not having paid those SSI benefits. And that's not even taking into account the cost to victims of experiencing the crimes. And also, obviously, the, you know, the cost to these young people themselves, right, who are now incarcerated. So, you know, the cost to society and to victims dwarfs all of the other costs in this, in this calculation. So the title of this research was a, a seemingly simple question, although politically over the last decades it, it has not been simple. Uh, does welfare prevent crime? The answer seems pretty clear cut here. Yes, the answer is clear that welfare does discourage crime. We have, a, I think, a very convincing setting in which we were able to compare young people who were removed from this program to basically identical young people who were lucky enough not to be removed from this program. And we see very clear increases in crime among those who were removed. Where would you hope this research goes? It certainly seems like something that could alter the conversation. Yeah, that's right. I think the findings are so striking that it's hard to ignore. This is a policy that we still have in place today. Certainly there are some differences between the context in 1996 and the context today, but I think the first order effects are likely to be very similar today um, as they were in 1996. And so, yeah, I think that I think we as a society have an important question to ask, right? Is that knowing these effects, knowing that for these young disadvantaged people with disabilities, are we going to continue basically leaving them without the source of income that is not only preventing them from engaging in criminal activity and becoming incarcerated, but presumably also very good for society in preventing all of those all of those crimes. I hope people think about this program in particular, but also what implications these findings have for broader policy as we think about things like an expand, expanded child tax credit or universal basic income. There are some things that are specific about this population, right? These are ki- kids who have disabilities. On the other hand, uh, these are young people, many of whom are, are being removed, are, are, are kids with mental and behavioral conditions that are actually kind of pretty similar to the general population of, of dis- disadvantaged children. And so I think there are lessons that we can learn from this study about what the effects of a child tax credit or universal basic income would have if it's targeted at the bottom of the income distribution. Manasi Deshpande, thank you so much for helping us out today and talking about your research. Thank you, Tess. It was uh, really a pleasure to talk to you. 
The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. And of course, you can subscribe to The Pie on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.